Listen, we've come full circle. Full circle. Little things, little things. Big things. Big things. Isn't everything (laughs) a little thing or a big thing? Isn't that everything that exists? Yes. Yes, Savage, it is. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I am your host, Chris Savage. We are joined, as always, by the podcast producer extraordinaire, Brooklynite herself, Sylvie Lubau. <laughs> Brooklynite herself. You're Brooklynite. I don't know why, but I know. You just basically <laughs> don't stop talking about Brooklyn. That's how Brooklyn you said native. it. Oh, I did this thing in Brooklyn. I ran this race in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Well... Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about our guest today. So we have <laughs> yes, please. Beth Monahan, who's the founder and CEO of Inkhouse. Inkhouse is a PR agency. They help with media relations, social media, tons of stuff like that. They're really great. We've worked with them for a while and excited to have Beth on the show. Um, we'll just give a little hint as to what you'll hear in the interview, but we talked about storytelling and telling great stories. We talked about culture, talked about building lasting companies. Like It was a really awesome conversation. I just, I love Beth. I was like, you do. Team Beth all the way. You are Team Beth. That was clear. I didn't take that as a threat, but now I think I might. Um, <laughs> Sylvie, what's going on? What's got you talking too loud these days? You know, Savage, it's been a hard couple of days. I think we're all feeling that um, just nationally. But I have decided to find tiny joys, tiny joys wherever I can. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an in person book club the other night and it was delightful because I just love reading books alongside people. That's great. Not literally, not literally alongside. What's the book? It's called Fight Night uh, by Miriam Toes. She's a Canadian author. Is this about the UFC or what's it about? How did you know? (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's about a sweet but sad family. In Canada. Um, Sorry. I just, the idea of you reading a book at the UFC. I could. No, it's just a very funny idea. I know you could do it, but tell me. Why not? Yeah. So the book's good. You recommend it? Honestly, it probably wouldn't matter what the book was. It's just this idea of like, you've read it. I've read it. We've all read it. And now we can kind of just like dissect it together. I love that. That's great. Eat it up. I will try to get you. You know, a, a Christmas gift this year of a UFC book. <laughs> That'll be my goal. Only if you read it too. Um, sure. The as long way. as there's an audiobook version, I'll read it. Sure. Okay. Is that reading if you listen? <laughs> mm. And you're doing 10 other These things at once? These are the hard-hitting questions. This is the type of stuff. The hard-hitting yes. questions of talking too loud. <laughs> <laughs> Which means... It's time. It's time to get into that interview with Beth. <laughs> um, so how should we transition? Just do it? Hard cut, easy way in. Just do it, Nike. Okay, we just did it. We transitioned. Beth, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much. This is going to be so much fun. Yes. Um, Now, obviously, the show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, I cannot control the volume of my voice. Like, my voice reverberates through the neighborhood. My children actually also do this, so I think it's genetic. Um, but we like to start the show by asking the question, you know, what's got you talking too loud or what's got you excited these days? Oh, my gosh. I mean, have you read the news these days? <laughs> the news is, yes. Which isn't fun. Not no. exciting. About, but no. it has me talking very loudly. Yeah. For someone who's listening to this later, what has you talking? What has, what has you, me talking? Yeah. Well, I think that we're just seeing... Um, 
so much fear in our country on all sorts of sides of issues. But what has me talking loudly is I think that there are a lot of people who are afraid that they won't be able to be who they are as freely as every human deserves. And that has me uh, talking a lot and talking loudly about it. And I, I think that we're in this moment in time where I, I say this all of the time, like ideas and beliefs and facts aren't going to convince anybody, right? Yeah. Um, so we have to remember our shared humanity and why our experiences matter so much. And we've kind of lost that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you could put the blame in lots of different places. You could put it in social media. You could put it in, you know, the internet writ large. But like this hyper polarization has made it incredibly hard to also break through to the other side. And I think that's the challenge for like how we build humanity with other people. Because yeah. obviously, I think everyone should be able to like, spend time with people that they disagree with and have a conversation and try to educate each other. But what right. seems so scary is that it's like, you're in your world, yeah. and I'm in my world. And like, we're just not overlapping at all. Totally. But we both know what it feels like to be scared. Yeah. Um, and we can't find that together. Yeah. So I love that you're talking about this. And I know you bring that sense of humanity to work every day with you. So for people who don't know, what is Inkhouse? And how did you start it? Sure. Uh, Inkhouse is an integrated PR firm. We have offices in I can't even tell you how many offices we have anymore. We have people in seven cities. We there moved you go. all over the country because of the pandemic. Um, we're about 100. We're just almost crossing the 150-person mark. We specialize in tech companies, but we, we do a bunch of other stuff. In layman's terms, we talk to reporters and try and get them to write good stories about our clients. And we also do a lot of social media and content marketing. And how did I get started? Um, I founded it with a partner 15 years ago out of my kitchen. And at the time we were like, wow, I wonder if we could get three clients. <laughs> so, and now it kind of has become an animal with its own volition, uh, which is really a gift to see. That's awesome. And very similar to Wistia, right? Like when we started, uh, my co-founder Brennan and I, our goal was do this startup for six months. We started 16 years ago. And we would either sell the company in six months and we'd be rich, or we'd just tell no one that we attempted this. You know, just <laughs> I, <laughs> we'll just fail in obscurity. That was the strategy. That's what I said. I was like, in a year, if it doesn't work, I'll go get a real job. Oh, yeah. I remember my dad saying, <laughs> So, what's your goal? Like, what's the revenue goal you're trying to get to? And I was like, Oh, we're trying to get to $60,000 a year. And then Brett and I can each make 30. Same. And he's like, you might want to shoot for a bigger goal. <laughs> no, I, we were the same. We had three clients, I think, that paid us, I don't know, $10,000 each, maybe. And my partner was like, I think we could get six clients. And I was like, we can never get six clients. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those funny things, the same feeling over and over, which is like, you get yeah. 10 customers, and you're like, maybe I can get 50. You know, and you get 50, you're like, maybe I can get 100, because I have 50. And it's just been this similar journey um, it sounds like that we've both had. Yeah. It's nice to hear somebody else talk about it because it's really, <laughs> people think I'm crazy when I tell them that story. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Um, <laughs> so you help people in companies figure out like how to craft their story, how to get their story out into the market, how to talk to reporters. And my relationship with Inkhouse has been really great. And like, we'll have these meetings 
and we'll spend 30 minutes like riffing on tons of ideas. And then we come back and we're like, these are the ones that people care about. These are the ones that people are not going to care about. And it's an interesting process because we can all get in our own heads about what story is happening. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could help us like help the audience think about this, because a lot of people don't really know what PR is. Yeah. They're not sure of the value of it. And yet they're maybe even not even realizing that they're doing things <laughs> that that would that are be interesting. That are interesting. Like how yeah. how does that process work when it's working? Sure. Well? Okay. Well, when we work with somebody like you, we kind of have a storytelling session where we mine like your background, what you do for your customer base, like who you are in the world and and what made you who you are. We call those your story assets. And uh, I think the mistake that lots of companies make is coming to their PR program with a list of their product features. And those matter. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's why you're in business. But they think, wow, we are the best at these five things. And so therefore, the press should care about us. We've grown this much. The press should care about us. And we've raised this much money. <laughs> and you know the the bar for coverage about how much money you've raised changes based on what's happening in the economy. Yeah, we had reporters telling us that like sixty million dollar rounds aren't interesting, but a number of years ago, two million dollar rounds were interesting. So you know, but what's most interesting is the why of what you're doing. So why do you exist? Like, what do you care about? What motivated you to get here? So that's what we want to know. And then we take that. And we pair it with what's happening in the world. And so I'm, I'm making a Venn diagram with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's newsworthy is where who you are and what you do intersects with what's happening in the news. So what we're always trying to determine is how can we fit you into the news cycles? Certainly, there will be times when we create news cycles. And the bar for that's a lot higher than just being involved in what's happening today. So that's the whole exercise. And to use the funding example, because your point being like last year, year before crazy amounts of funding going to the market. So yeah. it's not compelling to say you raised $10 million. It's not compelling to say you raised 20. 60 million is like the threshold, right? And now what is happening is that private rounds are disappearing and everyone's afraid and no one's investing and the stock market's crashing. And so yes. I would imagine if someone raises 20 million bucks in a month, if things continue, that might be newsworthy. Exactly. So you do have to know it's all about context and what's happening in the atmosphere. So there are no IPOs right now. You get an IPO that happens right now. That is huge, huge. news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But last year it was kind of boring. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that because it's also about momentum, right? Like it's like, how do you have like stories that keep resonating and keep gaining traction? And I have made this mistake myself in the past where like we had momentum and we were sharing little bits of stories about Wistia, and then we stopped doing that. And then things that were newsworthy were no longer newsworthy. Um, and then the opposite's been also true, where we have the momentum, yeah. and then it builds up, and now someone actually does care about your product feature when yeah. they would never have before. It's just like an interesting dynamic that like a lot of us are not thinking about. And I think that idea of like what's happening in the world and what these stories represent, right? Like if you raised to stay on the funding example, if you raise 50 million bucks now, that's an indication to everybody, oh, maybe the tide is changing or maybe we're hitting yeah, the, And so it's- this sector yes. is doing well, right? So yeah. we're looking for, yes, you mentioned trends. What we wanna do is situate your news within a trend so that it's not just a drop here, it's like a, it's a movement. Yeah. 
And it's just, it's very easy to forget that when you're in your own world. But like, you might oh, be is. the bellwether of something. And that's a very interesting story. And I think about that a lot because you need outside help often to tell. <laughs> if yeah. You know your own story and you think it's great, but it's that context that's really helpful. And I encourage folks listening to like try to think about that. Yeah. Like whatever anomaly you notice, if it becomes, if it gains momentum for you, that's a great thing to talk to your PR teams about because like you could be the first to have noticed something new emerging. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think going back on like kind of where we started in the show, like in a world where things are polarized and there's a lot of bad stuff happening and there's also a lot of good stuff and it's also hard to get nuance across. How do you think uh, about that? Yeah, it's um, I think it's the question on every business leader's mind and it's a complicated issue. The way I think about it for myself and the way that I think about it for clients is the same, which is who's your audience? And what do they care about? Um, right now, we're coming out of what the great resignation and um, retention and recruitment are still very important. We'll see if we end up in a recession that changes that shortly. But you have to think about your audiences. So if employees and recruiting new employees is a top goal for you, who are those employees? How old are they? What do they care about? When we look at data about millennials and Gen Z, the majority of them would like to work for organizations that share their values. Um, you have to talk to your employees to find out what their values are. So that's really important. Internal communications has been, always has been, but has become more to the forefront, so critical yeah. in this. So you need to understand what your audiences care about. What do your clients care about? And um, how does it align with your business goals or the things that you stand for, right? And so when I think about reproductive rights, let's take that hot button example, 80% um, of in-house employees are female. And most of us, not including myself, <laughs> are 30 and under, which are the years where this matters the most. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll say before the Roe versus Wade leak happened, we rolled out a benefit that was bereavement leave for a pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And out of the blue, the Boston Globe called me and they said, oh, we saw your new uh, benefit. And uh, <laughs> does that include abortion? And I said, well, of course, it's not my business how the loss happened. Mm -hmm. And after that, when the article came out, I was overwhelmed with the volume of emails from clients. I got stories from employees about their miscarriages and about their abortions. Like it was flowing in for days and just the like the nerve that it touched like the human experience people were like these were shameful things that i have kept to myself for all of this time and suddenly somebody made it okay but you have to think about that um you have to hold that in a couple of ways right because i i definitely got a lot of twitter trolls i got a right-wing publication that did a story on us and i thought wow am i going to have abortion protesters at my office I drove into the office for a few days watching for them, and they never showed up. But there's a cost to standing up for what you believe, um, and you do have to weigh that as a business leader. Well, first of all, it's amazing that you did that. Um, oh, thanks. And I mean, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who've had very hard losses. And one of the things I notice is that, like, when it's happening, you know, you don't know who to talk to. Because society kind of tells you not to talk about it. 
and it's like one of the most traumatic things in your life. And then you can't bring it up. No, and then, then what are you going to do? Go to work the next exactly. day and pretend that you're fine. That's what you're going to do. And so giving people the permission to do that is huge. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, it's something that aligns deeply with your values. And I think that it is interesting that like, Everyone wants to work at companies that align with their values. And it is the changed world. And so it's interesting because I also think about the fact that like, you know, let's go back to how do you get a story written? You didn't even intend to get the story written. It just happened. No, I I didn't want, I didn't need press for that, but but it happened. And you do need to be prepared for that. Um, Chris, you you mentioned values. Mm -hmm. And I know that I said that um, about Gen Z and Mm -hmm. millennials. What I also think is critical is for any organization to have a set of values mm-hmm. so that when things like this come up, you can act from your values because that is a basis from which to make all sorts of decisions. And, you know, here at Inkhouse, we believe that what's good for people is good for business. And so I weigh every single thing that we do against that. And there's a risk that we'll lose some clients, that we'll lose some employees, but I, I'm willing to take it. Well, you know, if you don't take the risks and you don't say what you care about, then I think you end up in a spot where you're nothing to no one. Right. Let's talk about leadership as a CEO of a, a company of 150 people, been around 15 years. What does great leadership look like today? It's changed so much. I mean, the old school style of leadership we all know is command and control, right? You know, it's like we learned it from the military <laughs> and, um, and nobody likes that. And I think that leadership today... It requires a lot more vulnerability than um, it did before. If you want to have an impact on your people, if you want to be a leader. So I define a leader as somebody people would like to follow, someone who people choose to follow and aren't forced to follow. And that's the key difference. So how do you do that? Um, I think that leaders are tasked with so many things these days, given the climate of racism and I mean, we are tasked with being soothers in chief. We are asked to drive our financial returns. We're asked to do a lot of things. And I think that as a leader, whether you are a manager or a CEO, you are the recipient of a lot of projections and needs of the people who work for you. And so in many ways, you get to help people deal with the world. And isn't that a privilege? You know, like I say, like my favorite thing about running Inkhouse is when I see people become who they are. When you have a space where they're like, oh, I'm growing into myself and not growing into the model that Inkhouse said, this is what a manager looks like. It's like, this is how I manage. And Inkhouse is giving me an infrastructure to really figure that out. But vulnerability is hard. We um we publish books of employee essays every year. <laughs> Tell me about I saw, that. I, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, this one's called Aren't We Lucky? Um, it was about resilience. We did it right after, well, last year. Mm. <laughs> um, and we have a different prompt every year. Right now, we just finished um, one on mistakes. What's a big mistake you've made? Because I think that's how so we- So many. Right? I know. Um, so- We have a prompt. We have a writing coach who helps people get to their topic. And then we have a book launch and readings. And the first time we did it was a number of years ago. And I thought I'd get like five essays. I got 50. And I set aside three days to read every single one of them. And I thought it might be, you know, I thought it might be like I have to like drag myself through this. And it was one of the most transformative things I have ever done. And I just thought, wow, we have this perception that the best stories exist in the bookstore or exist 
in PR firms where we're hearing the cool, innovative stories. I was like, you should just turn to the person next to you and ask them, like, what made them resilient in life? You're going to get something really cool. That's awesome. And how does the book fit into, you know, the culture and the other things that you do? Well, it's all about storytelling. Like, that's our job. So I started these storytelling things because I thought people, it would help people improve their writing skills. It would help improve their public speaking skills. And that's all true. But it builds community. And when I see people connect with a story, um, we've had people talk about alcoholism, about deaths in their lives. And then I see other people say like, oh, oh, I'm not alone. And I can go, if that person can get through this, then maybe I can. And I just, I see um, the connectedness that happens when we are willing to share our experiences. And it's really beautiful. That's awesome. One of our ERGs has put on this event called Storytelling Night. And basically, once a year, you get folks together and people can get up and just tell any story about their life, kind of modeled on the moth. Yeah. And uh, all designed around encouraging belonging. And if you really know who you're working with and you have the trust and the space um, to share those stories, it can really change the game in terms of mm-hmm. how much belonging you have in the company. But also, I think, like, in terms of when you're dealing with a hard thing, how much trust do you have to actually deal with it? Are you dealing with a really creative yes. thing? How much trust do you have to share that idea that is very different? Yep. I mean, for us, it's been that. We do all these other different things. And it's it's very cool to see that you have like the book that gets published and you have the record of this. Yeah. And that evolves over time, I assume, right? As new people join, other people leave, yep. like probably the themes and stuff are are different. Yeah. We kicked off a new theme this week, uh, which is adaptation and starting over. Cool. Yeah. You know, as a company that's been around for 15 years, I, I'm also wondering, what do you think about the future? What's the goal? Do you want to do this forever? Like, how, how do you think about it? <laughs> I get that question so often, and I never know how to answer it because I never had a goal in mind, mm-hmm. and I still don't. Mm-hmm. I never think we should grow just because that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I think we should grow because that gives our people more opportunities. So. That's the goal. I just think that um, my personal goal has always been to make the world a place where people can feel more whole. And so that's what we're trying to do internally. I try to use Inkhouse as a platform to advocate for that externally. Um, And it's really a gift. And so that's what motivates me. And I probably shouldn't be a CEO if that's my answer. I think it's a great answer. I mean, people ask me that exact same question. And I'm like, my answer has become, I'm trying to build a large independent business. And why am I trying to do that? Because by being independent, by being a private company, we get to invest in other things. We get to be more long-term. We get to invest more in our community and our team and our customers. Because that's what brings me joy, right? Like, And I love building and I love the challenge of growing. But it is about like the team you know? Yeah. And actually, one of the things I noticed recently is I've been very attracted to stories of people who were at SNL. And, <laughs> you know, there's like a, a couple different podcasts I listen to that like, um, talk about that. And I was noticing that it's kind of amazing to think about like Lauren Michaels, who runs SNL has been doing this for so long. And it's this period in people's career, which is crazy hard and really interesting, and they figure out who they are, and then they go out in the world, and hopefully, like, you know, in that world, they're, like, funnier and more confident and doing more interesting things. And the idea got into my head of, like, you know, I don't expect people will stay at Wistia forever at all. So can the mark of Wistia be, like, the place where you grew faster 
and you you saw what it felt like to be part of a team where you actually cared about the people that you work with and it was really creative and you knew who you were and that helped you. And so it's just interesting to think about like your impact on the world, the impact on the community by being a lasting company. Well, I, th- I think about that a lot. Yeah. I was saying it to my husband the other night, just about, you know, like, what do you do with all the horribleness in the world? And I said, well, I think that we have to um, create ripples of kindness and opportunities around us because they flow out into the world. And when you're a company, they literally flow out into the world with the people who bring those values forward. And Chris, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think too many people think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing back to both of us in terms of how we started. This was not on my mind (laughs) in 2006. Mine either. (laughs) And it wasn't on my mind in 2010 either. Like four years in, I think we were just trying to survive. But it's- Oh yeah, you're just like cranky. Yeah, but it's one of those things that starts to get in there as you start to think like, well, what if this really is lasting? What can the biggest impact be? And I think that it's a very cool thing that you're in the same spot, like thinking about this similar challenge and opportunity- that we have because you're building something lasting. Well, like from our client's perspective, you know, what do I think the lasting thing that I always want us to be for clients is absolutely the results matter, the press cover, all of it. But we are the people who believes in what is possible, who can see what's possible, who can look at the market and say, wow, what you are doing is so interesting because of these things. And we see possibility for that um, outside of your walls. And what are the pillars of this culture and the way that in-house operates that do create the ripples out into the community? Um, The thing I learned the hard way is that you can't force culture. The CEO cannot make it so. The CEO can set the values. You can help create a corporate intention. But values don't become real until they're shared. And so doing that well means that, you know, I used to get really mad, you know, when people weren't on board, when I was advocating for paid leave and people wouldn't get on board with that, I would just try to berate them into it. And that never works. So, you know, <laughs> like, I don't think that shaming has convinced anyone of one thing in the history of time. So, um, but I tried, I really did. And <laughs> I gave it a good go. So I think that the pillar is community and community comes from the community. So you have to create settings in which people can get to know each other and support each other and reinforce your values through the things that you do more than the things that you say. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think about that as modeling a lot too. Because the way I look at a lot of how we scale our culture is basically, how is the senior management team running? And if the senior management team is running really well, and there's good communication and all this other stuff, then I expect that that will ripple through the company. Yeah, that's so wise. But it's funny because like, it doesn't seem like that's the answer. It seems like the answer is process to lots of these things. Oh, because that's easier because we can make that, Yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, but actually modeling it, actually doing, even modeling it in a room where you know everyone's not in the room, it does permeate out. It's kind of one of the wild things. Um, Energy can is happen. contagious. Yeah. People don't realize it. You know, I am uh, in school to become a mindfulness teacher. Don't worry, I'm not going to quit my day job. But there's science around if the leader in a room slows down their breathing, everyone else does too. Yeah. So energy is literally contagious. And I think that it expands out in ways that we just don't even really understand. 
You know, the other thing about modeling that I think is hard today is that everyone wants to have open cultures with brave conversations, but nobody wants to talk to each other about difficult things. Mm -hmm. And those to like, we have to bridge that gap. And I think the pandemic has made that worse because people have been doing asynchronous communication so much. So we have to kind of bring back um, the idea that uh, hard conversations can be done with kindness. Well, I mean, I think if if you don't do that, you're basically also stunting people's growth. Yeah. No, you're holding them back because you're afraid to say the truth out loud. And that's not fair. Yeah. It's one of those things like feedback. Feedback should be a gift. Hmm. And I think about it, actually, when I think about the course of someone's career, and to be clear, I've made a million mistakes to get to my understanding of this. Like, <laughs> If we don't give someone feedback, you're setting them up for failure. Now, it's yeah. up to them if they're going to take it, but almost everybody wants to take the feedback. They That's do. the other thing. People are afraid to have the conversations, but they want to know. <laughs> they want to know. It's easier to know than to wonder. Yes. And it's less stressful. But I also think that you receive feedback well when the person giving it is rooting for you. Yeah. And you know if they're rooting for you or not. And that's it. Yeah. You know? So that's that's the whole... That's like the part of Radical Candor, Kim Scott's book that like really sticks yeah. with me is like, if you're not giving specific and positive praise consistently, then when you do give the feedback, people don't believe that you're That's rooting right. for them. No, they don't. Like you want the feedback to feel like, wow, this person respects me enough and thinks enough of me to know that I could do more than what I am doing now, Yeah, which is a gift. It is. Done the right it really way. Is. Um, so you talked a little bit about the pandemic and how it's shifted culture, but what has been your biggest lesson as CEO, like going through COVID? The pandemic? Yeah. This might not be a popular thing to say, but <laughs> we all want to believe that a completely virtual workplace is possible. I don't think you can build community without seeing each other. I think that you can build a kind of a community. I don't think you can build the tight-knit one. I don't think that there are as many learning opportunities as come from when you get to see each other. I don't mean that we need to do that every day, but we do need to create spaces where we can come together and learn from each other and care about each other. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. And I've talked to a lot of folks who have, were fully remote pre-COVID, and they all say it was critical to get the team in person. It was absolutely critical. And the key, I think, is like trying to outline when. <laughs> like, when should totally. you be there? Especially when now we're all across the country. So, you know. Yeah. So we've been trying to create. You know, we had our content team got together in Chicago the other week, and that was wonderful. Um, so we're, we're thinking about all ways to do that. Yeah. We've done this like system of, um, are you a jet setter, someone who meets up with the team two to six times a year? Are you a day tripper, someone who comes two to six times a month? Or are you an HQer? And you come in like two times a, <laughs> yeah. a week. Yeah. And uh, just to make our benefits different and the structure different. And then it's we've great. also tried to outline like, when should you be there? Like, and it's like strategic planning is best done in person. Yeah. Team building is best done in person. Onboarding, we think is probably best done in person. Trying to be really clear with people up front. Like make the trade, whatever trade you want. You can be far away. You can live in a place, very low cost of living, get a tech salary. Fantastic. But remember... With your job and your role, what you're doing, you're going to be coming in here two times a month plus these other meetings, or you never really have to come in. You're just going to come in right. for this all-company kind of retreat thing. But I think just being more clear about that is helpful. What do you think of the Apple news? 
I don't think I saw the Apple news. Oh, basically that they're like, we're going to force people back. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. You know, a lot of companies are doing that. Um, people hate it. Yes. Right. They hate, they, they hate, I just, forcing people feels wrong. Right. It's the command and control thing again. It's like, well, you know, we have to get people back in the office. And I just, you know, we have to find a way to uh, demonstrate why they should be in the office so that they choose to come. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's about flexibility and choice. Yeah. Now. Yeah. 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 Um, what are you most excited about for the summer? Well, I am excited that we actually are getting our entire agency together for the first time ever Woo! in September. That's so fun. we are deep into the planning of that. Um, I can't wait. Every time I talk to people, they say that's the one thing they're looking forward to. That's awesome. Yeah, we did our first all company on site in April. And it was really fun. Super energizing. Yeah. Where did you do it? We did it at the office. Nice. Because we have a very large office that we signed a lease on uh, in late 2019 <laughs> that goes unused. So. Perfect. And uh, That feels good, doesn't it? It, feel, but it was really funny because like when everyone was there, I was walking through it. There's all these people. Every desk is filled. And I'm like, if you took a photo of this and showed this to me in 2019... I would think nothing remarkable at all is happening. Nope, you'd be like, this is normal. Yes, and instead I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This is weird. It was really fun. Super, super energizing. So I'm so excited for you that you're having this, that you're getting everyone together. Um, This has been really fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you, connect with you, and and learn more? Uh, Inkhouse is at inkhouse.com, I-N-K-H-O-U-S-E.com. And if you click through to any of our bios, you can find all of our social channels. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. So I really enjoyed that. And I think it was very cool to talk to someone who's like similar size business, been around for some amount of time, asked himself many of the same questions but then like you know as we talked to beth realizing like there's some parts of our cultures that are very similar and some parts that are really different yeah which makes perfect sense like in her business it's like okay how do we help people tell their story that's the most important thing how do we match the story with what's actually happening in the market and then all the decisions around culture are designed to help people with storytelling and help people be themselves, which is also what connects. And seeing those parallels was really cool. And I think a good example of like, you should never copy someone's culture. You should try to figure out like, how do you enact um, your strategy, your business the best way possible? What does that actually look like in the employee experience? And I think Beth has obviously built a really strong, really thoughtful, really inclusive culture that's all about helping people tell stories, which is their business. And I think it's... uh, It's a good example for all of us in terms of like, how do you make your culture enact whatever it is you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. I feel like the overlap that I see between you guys is that like, at the end of the day, it's about investing in the people, right? Like you're both talking about investing in your team and clearly like Inc. House has initiatives and some policies that like really show that investment, right? And I know Wistia does the same. I I liked also seeing just like your different and unique approaches to leadership. And I think that was like a a really nice dynamic that maybe I haven't seen before on the show. Maybe I have. Oh. Maybe something new and different. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I also think another part of this that really stood out to me is we're talking about like 
getting your story to match what's actually happening, you know, in the news cycle, what's actually happening in the market, what's happening in culture. It is a really easy thing to not think about that. Totally. It is the default thing. Like you're spending all of your days building a company, launching a product, doing something, thinking to yourself like this is the most important thing in the world. And of course, it's the most important thing in your world. But you have to think about how your story resonates in that. And if you don't, it will never connect. Yeah, right. She made the delineation like your product is not your story, right? Like your product is great and you want people to use it. But in order to kind of get them to buy in, they have to buy into you. They have to know your context. And I think that was huge. Totally. And it's just so easy to forget that when you're in the thick of it, Um, which is why it's helpful to have people who just can think that way and are tapped into, you know, what stories people care about. She's got her finger on the pulse, Savage. She does. She does. So do you, Sylvie. I do? Yeah. Look at you. You got all these books. These, uh... This guy? Yeah. This guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, no. I think I'm going to modify this. I think you know what's going on in Brooklyn, but nowhere else. So close. So close (laughs) to being all aces today. But I was going to say my sweet producer transition going back Mm. to finger on the pulse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now I lost it. It was like if you're listening and your finger is hovering over that like button, smash it. Smash the like button. Smash it. Like it. Subscribe. Um, But yeah, give us the feedback. We talked about feedback too. Give us the feedback. We want to know what's working. We want to know what's not working. Um, if you're someone who listens to every episode and you take a lot of notes and you're changing your business constantly, just do us a favor. Just throw that comment in there. You know, just let the world yeah. know. It's the little things. They add up to make a big difference. And you know what time it is? <laughs> time to go. It's time to go. I need to drink my Topo Chico now. Oh, I'm jealous. Mm. Accidentally ordered it. Showed up. Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> You've got your finger on the pulse. Of- I thought I was ordering a case and one came. You know, when we gotta you do go. that, we got to go. We have to go. We got to go. This is, this is the go. end. This is the end. Bye, Sylvie. Bye, world. Bye, Savage. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.